today be in Exodus 27, verse 20 through 28:30. So the end of one chapter up to a little over the middle point of the second chapter. <clears throat> it's a blessing to be together to come to this God-breathed word, as, as Vic mentioned earlier, that when we read God's word, we are hearing God speak. This is how we hear God speak. And we recognize that God works providentially in our circumstances in all kinds of ways. Uh, but we know subjectively that we uh, are, are often prone to err uh, in our own subjective feelings and intuitions and all of that. Uh, but God's word gives us an unshakable firm foundation for all that we think and feel and believe and all that we practice. God's word is sure. One of the things that we always need to keep in view when we come to the Bible, as we just a moment think about Scripture, one of the things that we must always keep in view is the connection between knowledge and practice. Knowledge and practice, what we know should impact the way we live. And we recognize this, of course, this is a, an obvious statement, but Unfortunately, it often gets lost in the shuffle. The fact that what we know ought to impact the way we live. Another way to say this is that the Bible is not mere information. It is not just a pool of data. It is not something that is meant simply to fill our heads, to inform us cognitively. One of the things we talked about at the men's retreat is, as we discussed approaching the Bible is the way that people who come to the Bible, Christians who come to the Bible, we come wired differently. And so some people are, we talked about cogitators, uh, people who come to the Bible and they are naturally philosophically oriented. They are intellectually oriented. They like to think about ideas. They love concepts. They like to synthesize and connect compare and contrast. And for those individuals, there will be a temptation to come to the Bible merely for doctrinal principles, doctrinal propositions, and to be able to sort of lose ourselves in all of the cogitation on those things. Another kind of person who could come to the Bible is uh, a history buff, someone who just loves history, loves information. And especially when you come to the Bible, it's just full of history. You, you're getting a little, uh, a glorious picture of the ancient Near East as you come uh, to the Old Testament. And the Greco-Roman world and all of the, the historical background clues and the historical cultural features that just pop up off the pages of the Bible. And so uh, we can, if we're wired that way, we can lose ourselves really in just fascination with those historical data. But when we come to the Bible, whether we're wired in those ways or not, we recognize that we are never coming merely for information. So let's take a step back and apply this to, to the tabernacle. My prayer for us as a church is that our time in the tabernacle is impacting the way we actually live. Right? So this is not just information for information's sake. This is not just building up all the, the biblical theology and the themes that come throughout the Bible or the historical uh, intricacies of it. 
Or maybe you like details and you actually are fascinated by the construction of the tabernacle. Whatever the case may be, this must be actually impacting our lives, our day-to-day lives. So let me just say that here are a few of those big picture knowledge practice connections. If you've missed these up to this point, here are just a, a few. I'll give you four. Four big picture ways in which knowledge must bear in on life. Four knowledge practice connections that we've seen so far as we've been looking at the tabernacle. And the first of those is pursuit of holiness. You can't read the tabernacle without being confronted with the fact uh, we, we recognize we are not holy as we ought to be. We are being sanctified. We are being progressively made more and more holy in our practices. We see our sinfulness. But as Christians, we ought to be those who confess our sins before the Lord and pursue holiness. The tabernacle teaches us that because of holiness as the theme is everywhere. It reminds us that we as Christians are the temple of the living God. This is, it is mind-blowing, and I don't think we ever will be able to really wrap our minds around the fact that we are like that tabernacle, but even more so. In, in the sense that we, we are now the temple of the incarnate Christ who has poured out his spirit as he's enthroned in heaven, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So all this language of holiness, all this imagery of the gravity and the weight of God's glory as he is present in this place is meant to be transferred to our own perception of ourselves as we are the temple of the living God. I think few things drive us to pursue holiness or to use the words of Jesus, to hunger and thirst for righteousness more than this picture. So that's one that we've looked at. So if you've missed that, let me just download that now again. A second way that we see the knowledge practice connection is reverent and joyful worship in God's presence. And so just to go along, both with regard to God's presence and with regard to holiness, just to go along with what we just saw before, this impacts the way we worship. Now we know from Romans 12 verses 1 to 2 that we worship always giving our spiritual worship to the Lord in every moment. In Romans 6, we present our members to God as instruments for righteousness, not as instruments for sin. And so we worship God privately, but we also worship God corporately as a church. So our our private worship ought not to marginalize the significance of our corporate worship when we gather together. In both cases... There is the need for reverent joy. Why reverence? Because of God's holiness. Everything about the tabernacle points to God's otherness, his holiness. We should be in absolute awe and wonder on our faces before this God. And yet, unlike the tabernacle, we recognize that we have access to this God through Jesus Christ, and so we come reverently, and here's the tension, and this is, it's a glorious tension, we come reverently and yet boldly. We come reverently and boldly. Our reverence ought never 
to undermine our boldness, and our boldness ought never to undermine our reverence. And that Holy Spirit helps us with that. The Holy Spirit guides us along as we worship in spirit and truth with reverent joy towards the Lord in his presence. Quorum Deo, before the face of God. So that's the second. If you've missed that, please take hold of it. And then a third is our ongoing wonder at the beauty of Christ and his work. This is a repeated theme, and I've tried to bring this out week to week in the deep sheets, but this is a repeated theme that we just cannot miss. All the ways, and and frankly, from my point of view, as I've been working on these sermons and preparing these sermons, uh, that has just come into my heart in ways that it wasn't there before at all. Just the, the grandeur of Christ as he shines forth from the tabernacle. It increases our wonder at his beauty, what he has accomplished who he is as the bread of life, the light of the world, Emmanuel, the way, the truth, and the life, and so forth. It increases our love for Jesus Christ. Has your love for Christ been heightened, deepened, as a result of our time in the tabernacle? And then fourthly, submission to the Lord as the king of all. God is depicted in the tabernacle as the sovereign ruler of the universe. He's depicted as the great king enthroned in glory, worshipped by angelic beings that uh, are beyond our imagination, surrounded by pure gold. He is the royal, majestic king. And so you can't study the tabernacle without getting this point clear that God is the Lord. He's the king. And and all that that means for all of our little choices, all of our uh, little daily routines, all of our interactions, God is king. So I hope that at least these four things have been clear as we've been going through the tabernacle. So let me just ask you, how are these things impacting your life over the last few weeks? How, how are we really listening? We can listen with our ears, we can listen with our minds, but are we listening in, in, in the fully existential way that it is deep in our hearts and it's showing up in all of our lives? Holiness, presence, Christ, and majesty. In what ways is the information translating over to transformation in our lives. The title for the sermon today is The Priests and Their Garments, Part 1. So we'll begin this this week and we'll finish it up next week. Up to this point, our focus has been more on the structure and the components of the tabernacle. Uh, as sort of a static reality, we've been looking at it, we've been uh, describing it and analyzing it as it stands. But today, we begin to lean more into its functionality. So it is a thing, and we've been looking at that thing, and it's a, it's a set of things, but now we're beginning to lean into what goes on here in this place. The tabernacle is not a museum piece to merely be looked at. Oh, that's pretty neat. Look at the way that 
uh, means this, and that points there, and all of that. We've talked about that, and that's wonderful, and we need to be there. But it's not only that. It is a functioning place of worship. It is not something the Israelites just walk by for remembrance. It's not merely symbolic. It's a place where things happen. It has a function. And that, of course, brings us to the priests, those who work within the tabernacle tent and its court. Now, we've discussed the priests a little already. We've talked about them with regard to the altar. We talked about them already when we were in the holy place and and in the most holy place as we talked about the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the Day of Atonement. So we've been trying to, to bring that in, but the text really hasn't brought that in up to this point. It has given us descriptions and, and we've pulled from other texts to, to begin to lean into functionality already. But now at this point, the text itself brings those things clearly into view. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. Exodus 27, verse 20, up through 28, 30. This is the word of God. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before Yahweh. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Chapter 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, or aphod. By the way, that's another one of those cherubim. I'll just give it to you. You, you pronounce it however you wish, uh, but it is pronounced aphod. A robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen." You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his shoulders 
for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment and skilled work. In the style of the aphode, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row, and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. By the way, let me just say there's a lot of scholarly debate as to the nature of those stones, what precisely they are, a lot of etymological work that's done with other ancient Near Eastern languages, and it's not clear uh, precisely which stones those are. So I'll keep reading. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold and the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall, shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the aphode. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the aphode. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the aphode at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the aphode. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the aphode with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the aphode so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the aphode. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before Yahweh. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Tumim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You may go ahead and be seated. There's a lot there. But I hope at least uh, as we discuss those four things at the very beginning that you see that there is a reason that we are gathered like this reading a text like this, right? Now, as I said, I believe it was last week, what a miracle, or a couple weeks ago, what a miracle it is that we uh, are here standing up together, gathered to read a description of uh, how to make a certain piece of clothing. Uh, it really does show that uh, this is the word of God and we are God's people. And the spirit who inspired the word is at work in us to hunger for that same word. So we're grateful to the Lord that he has done this work in our hearts. Let's pray and ask for God's help. <clears throat> Lord, we're grateful for these words. We thank you <coughs> that you are sovereign over our lives, that you are the great king. And uh, this means, Lord, that you are in control of your world, and although Satan is described as uh, the prince of the power of the air uh, and the God of this world, we know that he is not God, but you are God. And though he moves about in this world like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, uh, he is nothing, Lord, but a creature. And God, we praise you that you are not a creature, but you are the creator. 
and you are sovereign over all. And we know, God, that you are working in our lives, you're working in our church, and you are using your word to do that, Father. So we pray this morning that you would faithfully apply your word to our hearts, give us uh, a clear understanding of what's here, and help us, Lord, to practice what we know. Help us to first know it, but then to practice it, to live before your face, to worship you in spirit and truth, to worship you uh, from the bottom of our feet to the top of our heads, from the outside of our skin to the marrow of our bones, in our soul and in our body, would all that we do be for your glory, for your praise. God, we ask your spirit's help this morning as your word is taught and heard, and we pray that you would illuminate it and help us all to benefit, to profit from this time, to be fully equipped, ready for every good work. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we begin this topic with part one. As I said before, we'll continue it next week. And for today, I want you to see two things about these priests. So I want to go ahead and get to the significance with these points. uh, And we'll look at the, the two Uh, pieces of clothing for today, but I want to go ahead and get at the two big ideas that I think are in view here um, as we take in these priests and their garments. So here they are, first servants. They are depicted, they are described as servants. Uh, We'll look for uh, verses 27, uh, chapter 27, 20 to 28, 5 for that, and then they are representatives. For that, we'll look at uh, verses 6 to 30 in chapter 28. They are servants And they are representatives. It also helps us to understand the nature of priesthood. What exactly is it to be a priest? Uh, Sometimes we come to these words and we we, we too quickly define them from from outside. We too quickly come to a word and we define it by, by some other factor. But what's beautiful about Scripture is we typically can define these words by their context. We can understand as they emerge in the text what they are at the core. And what we have here is that these priests, as they are called, are servants and representatives. So let's look first at servants. And for that, we're going to relook at uh, 2720 to 285. So go there with me and let's take those verses in again. <coughs> Excuse me. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, uh, that is the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning. Before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. By the way, just a quick note. Uh, God cares about beauty, uh, just intri- intrinsically, right? We'll, we'll talk a little bit about why they're beautiful. There is a reason, but God loves beautiful things, and God has made a beautiful world, and we are made in God's image, so we're able to recognize the beauty in the world unto his glory and unto his praise. So just a little note here, uh, as we're going through life, maybe we should take our faces off of the the ground, the the plowing that we're doing and all the work that we're doing, 
and take time to look up and just to take in the beauty that the Lord has placed there for his glory. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make. A breastpiece, an aphode, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. These last two verses of chapter 27, you may be wondering, well, why, why did we put these last two verses in 27 in with this? We should just have kept that with 27. That's neater. Uh, right? And uh, we recognize uh, that, you know, we, we may want to do that sometimes. But these last two verses of chapter 27 form a bridge. They are a bridge between what we've discussed so far and what we'll go on to see with the priests. So just two observations here about these verses being a bridge. First, notice the shift from dwelling place or tabernacle to meeting place. So in verse 21, you get this language of the tent of meeting. And that becomes the the language used from this point forward. And what it does for us is it raises the question, with whom will the Lord be meeting? It's it's an active term. It's it's a dynamic. It's a functional term. It's a place of meeting where God meets with his people. And not just the taking in the structure, not just taking in the furniture, but it is a place of meeting. We've seen it described as a dwelling place, as a house for God with various rooms and so forth. Now it will be described as a place of meeting. And this, of course, anticipates the priests. (coughs) A second observation here is the reference to Aaron and his sons in verse 21. This anticipates the more detailed discussion that will follow. So all of this to say that these last two verses of chapter 27 form a transition to the topic of the priests that will dominate the rest of this section. And in fact, the priests will occupy the bulk of the tabernacle section. Moving forward, that will be the focus Our the priests. So once again, let's remember what the scene is here. God is talking to Moses. So we're still up on the mountain. We're still in a conversation between Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, and Moses. And he is telling Moses what to do when he goes back down to the people. Remember, he's going to go back down later. He's going to have the tablets of the Ten Commandments. He's going to find the people worshiping a golden calf uh, and We'll proceed with, with that later. But for now, we just need to keep in mind that God is giving these instructions to Moses. And his job is to come down off of the mountain and convey those instructions to the people. And here he says that the people are to contribute pure, beaten olive oil. So this is, in other words, this is olive oil that is free of pulp. Uh, this is beaten in such a way as these unripened olives are beaten in such a way that what you get really is just the oil, no pulp. And this will be used for the lamps in the holy place. And you'll remember from the tabernacle, as we uh, discuss the various rooms, there's the most holy place at the back of the tent, and that's where you have the Ark of the Covenant. And then you come through the veil with the cherubim on it, and then in the next room is the holy place. 
Well, on the north, on the north side, you have the, uh, the table, the table for the bread of the presence. On the south side or to the left as you walked in, you had the lampstand, the golden lampstand. And the priests are to be involved in keeping this lit. These lamps must be kept burning before Yahweh throughout the night. And this is to be a regular practice in perpetuity. So verse 21 says this, that it is a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So let's just take a moment again to reflect on that light that keeps burning at night. And it just reminds the Israelites that God is watching over them, that God never sleeps. Um, I can remember in my early 20s, I was in the Marine Corps, in the Marine Corps Reserve, and when I went to boot camp at Paris Island, uh, we were there, and at night, every night, every hour, there would be what's called a fire watch. And so uh, there would be two guys who would walk through the, the barracks, and all the other guys would sleep, but these two guys would walk back and forth, and when they got up to the end of their time on fire watch, they would come and wake up the next two guys and they would get dressed. The other two guys would get back in bed and those two guys would start their fire watch. So all through the night, and they had the, uh, we had these little uh, flashlights with a red beam and so that was going all through the night. The light was present all night. There was always someone watching. And the image here with the holy place and the lampstand and the lamps is that God is always present and always watching over his people. While the people sleep, the Lord is awake. Psalm 121 verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He is the ever-watching God. He's always vigilant, caring for his people watching over his people. And of course, as we discussed with the lampstand, uh, we know that it points to Christ, who is the light of the world. In Christ, there is light, not darkness. In Christ, there is freedom, not slavery. In Christ, we have been transferred from a life of darkness, a life of just fumbling around. And let me say this, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you may think that you see clearly but the truth is that you don't. You don't fear the Lord. The beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge, we're told in Proverbs, is the fear of the Lord. You may be able to see with your eyes, but if you do not have Christ, you are spiritually dead and lost in darkness. Your view of reality is perverted. It is twisted. It is inverted. It is skewed. You do not see God rightly. You do not see yourself rightly. You do not see others rightly. The state of an unbeliever is a state of darkness. It is only in Christ that there is light. And so the light must be kept burning. But what I want to draw your attention to here is the way the priests are introduced. So first, we are told who they are. And look at verse 21. We're told who these people are. It is Aaron and his sons. And more detail is given in chapter 28, verse 1. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. Now we know that Nadab and Abihu are going to be destroyed. They're going to offer strange fire to the Lord. They're going to do something against the Lord's prescribed worship. And God is going to wipe them out. 
And then Eliezer will become the next high priest after Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother. He was the one who accompanied Moses as he went to Pharaoh and told the Pharaoh to let the people go. He accompanied Moses, acted as as a prophet-like figure with Moses as they were bringing, as the Lord through them was bringing the plagues on Egypt. You will remember that when uh, Moses went up halfway with the elders onto the mountain, that Aaron and Nadab and Abihu went up with Moses. They will be the priests. There is to be an Aaronic priesthood. Aaron, as we'll see, will serve as the high priest. And he will wear additional garments. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But the, the two garments we'll look at today are only worn by the high priest. And his sons, at least while he is still alive, will be subordinate priests or priests in general. So Aaron will serve as the high priest. His sons will be the priests. Leviticus chapter 21 verse 10 refers to this high priestly figure as the priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments. So this is a particular priest among the priests who is the chief or the high priest. These priests, Aaron and his sons, are to be brought near from among the people. Verse 1, they are to be consecrated. Verse 3, in other words, they are to be set apart as holy to Yahweh. They are to be set apart for a particular purpose. And so we get this language in verse 2. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And they are to be skillfully made. In other words, the the garments themselves are meant to depict the status and the set-apartness of Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons are holy. They are set apart for this particular work. And so the garments they wear are holy and set apart. The garments function to distinguish them with dignity and honor as their status as priests. And these garments are introduced here in verse 4. A breastpiece, an aphode a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. So who are they? Aaron and his sons, set apart with special clothing. They are set apart visually for a particular work. That's the first part of understanding who they are. But second, we need to understand who they are in terms of their function. What are they to do? What do they do? And we get this answer twice in verse 1. To serve me as priests. Verse 4. To serve me as priests. And this involves various kinds of things like, as we read in verse 21, tending the lamps. These priests are most fundamentally set apart as servants of Yahweh. And so that's the reason I've put this up here. That's the emphasis as these priests are introduced. They are to serve me, God says. Yahweh says they are to serve me. They will be tasked with carrying out God's worship. They will serve God by mediating between him and the people. They will serve to put his glory on display and to bring his people near. Let me say this, they serve the people by serving Yahweh. You can can see the priests in their horizontal function as they serve the people. 
but ultimately they are serving Yahweh. So how are we to think about this today, just on the ground level? Uh, we do not have priests. And I recognize that uh, some branches of Christianity and, and even some denominations within the Protestant Christianity have what they call priests, but we do not have priests. The, the, the roles of church organization, the roles of, of those who lead the church are called different things in the New Testament, shepherds, overseers, elders, and then of course you have the office of deacons. But we don't have priests like what we find here. So we, how are we to understand this? And it's interesting that we get this uh, language in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, regarding Christians as a priesthood. And so this has given rise to the idea of the priesthood of believers, that we don't have priests because we are all priests. So let me read this to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, to be a holy priesthood, offering up sacrifices from our own hearts daily, individually, all priests of the living God. So I just want to take a step back and think about this for a moment. As priests, these priests in the Old Testament are serving Yahweh. And as we think about our own priesthood of believers, we recognize that at the end of the day, everything that we do as Christians, everything that we do in this church is most fundamentally service to Yahweh. It is service to the Lord. Now, why does that need to be said well, the truth is that we get wrapped up in our service. We get wrapped up in the things that we do. And our motives are all over the place. And our motives, by the way, we should always say this, are never perfect. If we could dig deep enough, if we could go far enough into the human heart, we would see how complexly imperfect our motives are. But what we need to understand is that all that we are doing is most fundamentally for Yahweh, that everything we do, we do as unto the Lord. We work heartily, and oftentimes the reason we don't work heartily or the reason that uh, we're not spiritually enriched and not spiritually enriching as we carry out our service is because we're really not doing it unto the Lord. We're really not serving him. It's just a reminder that as Christians, all of us as a priesthood of believers are carrying out everything we do before an audience of one. We always have an audience of one. We serve the Lord. One of the most important ways that these priests serve is as representatives. And that brings us to our second point. This morning, and that is Representatives, chapter 28, verses 6 to 30. Now, this is a large chunk of text, but I want to try to boil it down and make some important observations. I do want to look at it again, so if you would go with me, we'll read verses 6 to 30 again. Try to piece it together in your own mind, as I've encouraged you to do before, and then I will try to boil it down. And yes, once again, I'll give you a picture uh, so that you can take what you have formed in your own mind and compare it and be like, oh, just be disappointed with, with how you put it together. I know that's the case for me. 
So beginning in verse 6, and they shall make the aphod of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and a fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it. Of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords. And you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work in the style of the aphod you shall make it. Of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen you shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. And the span is the the distance between the tip of your thumb and the tip of your pinky as you separate your hand. So you're looking at about eight or nine inches. You shall set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncles shall be the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the aphod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the aphod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the aphod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the aphod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the aphod with a lace of blue, so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the aphod, so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the aphod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before Yahweh. And in the breastpiece of the judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Tumim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart. When he goes in before the Lord, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. (coughs) Here we are given a description of the two most significant parts of the high priestly garments. That's fascinating. It really is to think that there's one guy who goes into the inner part of this tent to God's throne room once a year. And this is what he is supposed to wear. These two are for the high priest only. The aphod, verses 6 to 14, and the breast piece of judgment, verses 15 to 30. So let's first take a moment to describe each of these. I'm going to take a little bit of time to look at what's here. So first, the aphod, 
It is made of the same fabric and in the same color as is found within the tent. That's important. Look at verse 6. Of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and a fine twined linen skillfully worked. This brings the priest to the tent. Uh, It tells us that this person is supposed to go into that place. His garment matches the inner curtain of that place. And once again, connecting the holiness of the place to the holiness of the priest. Once again, connecting the dwelling place to the meeting place. God's house to where God's work, God's service is carried out. This garment has been described as a vest or an apron. So if whatever you had in your mind before does not approximate to a vest or an apron, just kind of get your eraser out, kind of scratch that, and that's what's going on here. A vest, no sleeves, uh, or an apron. And it is, has a band that goes around that ties it to the high priest's body. In addition to the gold that is worked into the fabric, there are also gold settings for stones as well as pure gold chains to link the aphod with the breast piece, which we'll talk about in a moment. As with the fabric, this gold points to the tent where the priest will work, the holiness of God's dwelling place and the holiness of those who will serve him and meet with him there. The most significant characteristic has to do with the shoulders. It's the most significant part of this piece of the garment. It comes with two shoulder pieces, and on each of them is a stone. And here the stone is translated onyx, but there is some debate over the translation. As I said before, it's difficult for scholars to work out precisely what these stones are as we understand the stones or try to identify the stones today. So for the history buffs, Uh, The history buff-minded out there who uh, really are serious about this, I would encourage you to go and read and look at the different ways that these stones uh, uh, have been identified. On each of these stones is engraved the names of six sons of Israel. So we have six names per stone. On one shoulder, six of Jacob's sons, and on the other shoulder, the other six. And that brings us all the way back to God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And it is through the 12 sons that God builds the people. He builds the nation. And so at the beginning of Exodus, we, we read about how there were just 70 people in all, 70 males who came from Canaan to Egypt. And God took the 70 and he multiplied them over and over and over so that there are over 2 million people, over 2 million descendants of of Jacob's 12 sons coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. So the high priest is to have the 12 names on his two shoulders. Now, I also want to point out something that I think is pretty fascinating. It brings us back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, One of the themes that we've been talking about all along is the way that the tabernacle pictures Eden. It brings us back to Eden. It it brings the worshiper back to the presence of God in paradise. Well, we get that again here with these onyx stones. So let me read this to you from Genesis chapter 2. And you may remember this, and you may have already made this connection. But in Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, we get this. A river flowed out of Eden. 
to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. So you think, oh, well, that, you know, I think there's something to that. Here we have the tabernacle, all the other imagery, right? You've got to put it together with everything else, the cherubim and the eastern entrance and all of that moving west. Here we have these references at the very beginning of Genesis to gold and onyx stone. And as we come to the tabernacle, we have these onyx stones and this gold everywhere. Once again, it is reminding the worshiper that through the atonement which God has provided, through his presence, there is a return behind the fall. Verse 12 gives us the reason why these names are put on these stones. Verse 12, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the aphod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his shoulders for remembrance. And we'll come back to that in a moment after we look at the breast piece. But let me go ahead and give you a picture uh, so that you can see what this aphod looks like. You will see a robe underneath it. That comes next. But the aphod is the apron-looking thing, uh, the vest slash apron that goes over the shoulders. And you can see on the two shoulders uh, these stones that would have the names of the sons of Israel upon them. So now let's go to that piece that's there in the center with the other stones, the breast piece. There's lots of material here as we think about the verses covered, but what I want to try to do is boil it down for you and to essentially look at this. It is made in the same way as the ephod. So it looks very much like the ephod, the aphod. It is a double-folded pouch. So when you think breast piece, Think pouch. It's not a plate. It is a pouch. And it is made of the same fabric as the aphod and attached to it with golden chains connected to rings. And the two are supposed to always stay together. The aphod and the breast piece are to always be present. As with the aphod, it has precious stones on it, but this time there are 12 stones, four rows of three. One of Jacob's sons on each stone. Let me read that to you again, verses 17 to 21. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row, and the second row an emerald, sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. And the significance of this is given in verses 29 to 30. So if you want to look there in your Bibles, at the very end of our passage for today, verses 29 to 30. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. So before on his shoulders, now on his heart. When he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of the judgment, of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Tumim, 
and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So let me just take a moment, only a moment, to talk about the Urim and the Tumim. That sounds very weird uh, to, to us. We, we think, what in the world is going on there? And in fact, uh, scholars and commentators don't, don't know what to do with it in, in, the, in terms of the details. There's not, there are not many details given in Scripture regarding what these things would have looked like. They were used for decision-making. They were a means of rendering judgment in difficult cases. Maybe flat stones or colored stones of some kind. Uh, maybe Urim uh, is referring to curses and Tumim is referring to blamelessness and so innocence. There's, there's a sense in which there, there may be people who would come forward and these would be put before the Lord and they would be a means of, of seeing what it is that is true in the situation when a decision cannot be made. But there's just much mystery surrounding the Urim and the Tumim. But they were present there in the pouch of the high priest. So just to put a little more meat on the bones of that, let me read to you from Numbers 27, verse 21. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest. This is the point. He's standing before the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. So here you see that God uses the Urim and the Tumim to give revelation, to help the people to know what to do. So what do we have here? As we finish up this morning, we've got these these two pieces of the garments of the high priest, and especially here with uh, with this second, what do we do with all of this? Well, first, I want to draw you back to the point, the point of being representatives. The high priests are representatives of the people. They bear the people before the Lord. So there is a sense in which as the high priest comes into the tent, he comes with all of Israel behind him. And he literally has, as it were, all of Israel on him, on his shoulders and on his Chest, And perhaps we could see it this way, that he bears the weight of the people on his shoulders. And he has the care of the people always in his heart. The people are brought into the presence of the Lord through their representative. The high priest functioning on their behalf. But secondly, I want, you, I want to draw your attention to this word remembrance. Remembrance. What is going on here when the Lord says that this will be for remembrance? Is it for the people to remember? Well, I don't think that's what's going on. I think there is a parallel here to Genesis chapter 9 with the rainbow. So let me read that to you. Genesis 9, verses 13 to 16. This is what the Lord says to Noah. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, listen to this, I will remember. I will remember my covenant. That is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, 
I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Now we know that God doesn't need his memory to be jogged. This is covenantal language. As the high priest comes into the tent, it is God seeing those names engraved on the the high priest's shoulders and engraved on the chest of the high priest, each one getting his own stone. And all the descendants of those 12 sons of Jacob, there on the heart and on the shoulders of the high priest, God sees those names and he remembers his covenant. He forgives sin. He stays present with his people. He pours out his faithfulness because God remembers. When we were going through Genesis 9, talking about the rainbow, we recognize when we see it, and of course the rainbow has been hijacked, but when we see the rainbow and we look at it, we remember, we think of it. But we need to recall the fact that it is meant to be a sign for the Lord. He sees the rainbow and he spares the earth. All the wickedness in this earth going on right now. The earth deserves, the the human race deserves to be destroyed just as it did in the time of Noah. The thoughts and intentions of our hearts are still wicked from our youth. And yet God sees the rainbow. He remembers his covenant. And he faithfully and graciously does not destroy the earth. The same is true here. God sees the names and he forgives his people. In both cases, whether it's representation or remembrance, our minds are immediately drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the high priest. All that these priests wear, all that these priests do, are fulfilled entirely in the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to be talking about high priest and priest for a a little while, so we'll come back to this. But I want to close this morning with this passage from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. This is the practical Outworking. This is the implication of what it means that we have a high priest. We still have a high priest, but it is Christ who has passed through the heavens. So listen to these words. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's so many practical implications of what we've looked at today with this high priest and his garments. But the one thing that I want to leave us on this morning is that we do have a high priest. We do have someone who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. We do have one who hears us and cares for us and who invites us to come boldly to the throne of grace 
For what? For help. For help. For grace in our time of need. So as we finish the service this morning, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, as we pray, consider that Jesus stands right now as our advocate. He stands right now as our interceding high priest at the right hand of the Father. He hears all of our prayers and he is sympathetic with us in all of our weaknesses. What joy is there for us? Regardless of how you've come in this morning, regardless of your burdens, regardless of the sins from last night and this morning, come to this high priest and find rest. Find peace. Find one who says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you show us your glory. We thank you for the big picture and for all the trees and even for all the leaves and the pieces of bark on the trees. Father, we thank you for the details and the big picture. And we thank you, Lord, that all of it is summed up in Jesus Christ. We thank you that all your promises that are uh, symbolized and demonstrated in the tabernacle, that all of your promises, as Paul says, are yes in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we praise him. We pray that we would be, uh, that we would love Jesus, truly love Jesus in the way, not in the superficial, sentimental way that our culture defines love, but in the way that your word says that we are to love this redeeming Lord. We pray that we would serve him faithfully, Lord, and that we would come to him in our weakness, in our sin, that we would confess our sins and that we would find the forgiveness and the joy and the peace of conscience that comes only through him. We thank you for your spirit who applies all of this to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.